Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Europe. Today is Sunday, November 16th, 2014. Once again, I'm here with my co-host, Sven Longshanks. Hello, Sven, and greetings. Praise Yahweh. Hello, Bill. Praise Yahweh. Glad to have you here. We are... Thank you. Well, we have um, had a problem with our second stream, our second server at Christogenia this past weekend, Friday and Saturday. That has now been repaired. It is rectified. Stream 2 is up and running for live programs now. I fixed that this morning. Today's program, while we've been, what we've, we've been addressing um, non-Christians in Europe, today's program is really aimed at Judeo-Christians who have been fooled into believing that God's eternal enemies are God's chosen people somehow, when they are actually ignorant of the actual history of the Jews in Europe. And prayerfully, in the future, we will do more programs in, in, in this same, from this same approach, from the same perspective. First, I'm going to quote from Martin Luther on the Jews and their wives, written in 1543, which I actually um, had presented a sermon from Martin Luther here on his program, I think, four weeks ago, perhaps. And, and um, Luther, while we, of course, we can't agree with all of his religion, because he also thought that God's eternal enemies were God's chosen people. It's an, it, it's an old error of the Roman Catholic Church, which Luther had followed. However, Luther also understood that the people known as Jews today were absolutely evil and treacherous and, and sought to undermine and destroy Christian society in Europe. And Luther wrote about that um, and his remarks were very consistent in that regard and have been proven by the subsequent history of Europe. This is from part seven of Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies. And he says, Therefore, the history books often accuse them, meaning the Jews, of contaminating wells of kidnapping and piercing children, as, for example, at Trent and at Weissensee. And, and the reference to Trent is a reference to the case of Simon of Trent, who was a young man who was ritually murdered by the Jews. And there is a plethora of contemporary evidence as to the murder of Simon which took place in the 15th century AD, about 100 years before the time of Luther, and Luther was obviously aware of the case. Weissensee is a reference to the murder of a young student named Conrad of Weissensee, the son of a soldier, who was killed by the Jews in a ritual murder case in 1303 AD. So Luther points to these two, as an example, these two cases as one example or two examples of the Jews kidnapping and piercing children. And he goes on to say, 
they of course deny this. And he says, whether it is true or not, I do know that they do not lack the complete, full, and ready will to do such things either secretly or openly where possible. This you can assuredly expect from them, and you must govern yourself accordingly. And Luther isn't really doubting the veracity of the cases. He's just saying that even without these two cases, that the, that the nature of the Jews is agreeable to the illustration of their nature in those cases. In part 10 and part 11 of On the Jews and Their Lies, we will see that Luther did accept these cases as being true. And he says in part 10, speaking of the Jews, they have been bloodthirsty bloodhounds and murderers of all Christendom for more than 1,400 years in their intentions and would undoubtedly prefer to be such with their deeds. Thus they have been accused of poisoning water and wells, of kidnapping children, of piercing them through with an awl, of hacking them in pieces, and in that way secretly cooling their wrath with the blood of Christians, for all of which they have often been condemned to death by fire. We lodge them, we let them eat and drink with us. We do not kidnap their children and pierce them through. We do not poison their wells. We do not thirst for their blood. How then do we incur such terrible anger, envy, and hatred on the part of such great and holy children of God? And Luther used phrases like that last one quite frequently but usually with a, a, a large amount of sarcasm, and he's being sarcastic here. In part 11, Luther said, I have read and heard many stories about the Jews which agree with this judgment of Christ. In other words, what Christ said about their nature. Namely, how they have poisoned wells, made assassinations, kidnapped children, as I related before, I have heard that one Jew sent another Jew, and this by means of a Christian, a pot of blood, together with a barrel of wine, in which, when drunk empty, a dead Jew was found. There are many other similar stories. For their kidnapping of children, they have often been burned at the stake or banished, as we have already heard in part 12. But since they lack the power to do this publicly, they remain our daily murderers and bloodthirsty foes in their hearts. Their prayers and curses furnish evidence of that, as do the many stories which relate their torturing of children and all sorts of crimes for which they have often been burned at the stake or banished. Now, Luther can be written off as a single crazy anti-Semite, which is what the Jews try to do. That is how they attempt to portray him. However, 
Luther referring to these many stories, that these um, many accounts, these banishments of Jews, all of these things are recorded in medieval history. And Arnold Lees and his Jewish ritual murder, which, which is a, um, a booklet which he wrote, I believe in the 1930s, is a, is a virtual catalog of known cases with documentary citations of Jewish ritual murder in Europe. And, and Arnold Lees went into great length about the story of Simon of Trent at great length for the size of the pamphlet. It's four or five paragraphs. And, and I would like to um, present that briefly, if, you, if you'll permit me, Sven. Do you have any comments? <clears throat> uh, uh, no, I'd say uh, go on with that, and, and then, then I'll, I'll add to it um, after that. I mean, is it, is that to do with Simon of Trent that um, Lisa's is talking about? Yes, Simon of Trent yeah. is, is a... Is a is an outstanding case of Jewish ritual murder, not because it's alone, that there were hundreds of such recorded cases in Western Europe, and, and there were many cases in Eastern Europe that, that aren't as well documented. However, the stories are definitely there in Hungary, in Romania, in, in Poland. The, um, the Simon of Kent trace, however, the Simon of Trent case has... Um, has been well documented when it occurred, and, and that's the reason why it's so outstanding. In 1475, and I'm reading from Arnold Lees and, and his, um, my irrelevant defense being meditations inside, jail, and out on Jewish ritual murder. Lees was persecuted in England and, and arrested and, and jailed for his, um, his, his, his professions. This was written in 1938. And he says, in 1475, a three-year-old boy named Simon disappeared in the Italian town of Trent. The circumstances were such that suspicion fell upon the Jews. Now this is um, 25, 43, it's 68 years before Martin Luther wrote on the Jews and their lies, and Luther mentioning the town of Trent in connection with the accusations against the Jews is corroborating what, independently, what Lise has found here. And he goes on to say about this disappearance of Simon, the circumstances were such that suspicion fell upon the Jews. Hoping to avert this suspicion, they themselves found, and he puts that in quotes because he's sarcastic about it, found the child's body in a conduit where they afterwards confessed to having thrown it. Examination of the body, however, revealed that the boy had not been drowned. There were strange wounds on the body of circumcision and crucifixion. About seven Jews were arrested they were tortured and confessed that the boy had been richly murdered for the purpose of obtaining Christian blood to mix with the ceremonial unleavened bread. These confessions were made separately and agreed in all essential details. The Jews were tried and ultimately 
executed. The the officer in charge of the investigation of the crime, Jean de Salis de Brescia, had before him a converted Jew, Jean de Feltro, who described how his father told him that Jews of his town, Lanzat, had killed a child at Passover to get the blood of which they partook in wine and cakes. Which supports Luther's comments to a great degree. No one has ever dared to try and deny the historical events of this case. Only the Jews invent reasons, and he puts that in quotes, being sarcastic, as to why it was not ritual murder. But there is no escape from the opposite conclusion. In 1759, in answer to a Jewish appeal from Poland, the Inquisition sent Cardinal Ganganelli, who later became Pope Clement XIV, to investigate and report on the whole subject, with particular reference to the many cases then being reported in Poland. And, and the Jews had relative freedom in Poland. They were emancipated and lived in, as equal citizens amongst the Christian Slavs, for 500 years before their emancipation in Germany and France. So the Jews had a lot more political freedom in Poland than they ever had in the, in the rest of Western Europe and Central Europe. The many cases then being reported in Poland, although this man, referring to the cardinal, went out with a biased mind in favor of the Jews, in his report, he says, with my weak faculties, I endeavored to demonstrate the non-existence of the crime which was imputed to the Jewish nation in Poland, hardly the spirit in which to enter upon such an investigation. He actually says of this Trent case, and, and Lise actually cites a, a, a report found, a, a copy of Ganganelli's report found in another book, I admit then as true the fact of the Blessed Simon, a boy three years old, killed by the Jews in Trent in the year 1475 in hatred of the faith of Jesus Christ, although it is disputed by Basnage and Wagonseal, for the celebrated Flaminio Cornaro, a, veteran, a Venetian senator, in his work on the, on the cult of the child Simon of Trent, disposes of all the doubts raised by the above-mentioned critics. So Ganganelli was a critic of Jewish ritual murder and admitted as true the case of Simon of Trent. He dismissed Jewish ritual murder basically as least portrays based upon his own feelings and emotions before having investigated the facts. The Jews try to throw discredit on the judges who condemned the Jewish murderers by quoting Pope Sixtus IV, who refused to sanction the cult of St. Simon. But the reason for this was that the cult was not then authorized by Rome, but it was a popular movement without authority and contrary to church discipline. The same pope later expressed his approval of the verdict 
against the Jews, and the papal bull dated for July 1478. We have not only the testimony as to the correctitude of the proceedings from Sixtus the Sixth, the Fourth, I'm sorry, but also that of several other popes, such as Sixtus V, who regularized the popular cult of St. Simon by ratifying it in 1588, as cited by Benedict XIV in Book One, Chapter 14, Number 4 of his On the Canonization of Saints, and also by Pope Benedict XIV in his Bull Beatus Andreas of second, 22nd February, 1755, in which he confirms Simon as a saint, a fact omitted from the arguments of that advocate for the Jews, and he's quoting a guy named Strack in a book, The Jew, the Jew and Human Sacrifice. Gregory XIII recognized Simon as a martyr and even visited his shrine. And, as already stated, Clement XIV was obliged to recognize that it was a case of Jewish murder in hatred of Christianity, which is the reasons for the crucifixion scars found on Simon's body. Luis goes on to say, St. Simon's Shrine is in the Church of St. Peter in Trent. Relics of him are still shown. Among them, the sacrificial knife. What which, even if it, if it isn't the original knife, is certainly representative of, of, the, of, of the known reasons for his death. Lees concludes, In short, the ritual murder of St. Simon at Trent is supported by such evidence that those who doubt it are thereby condemning without reason, high juridical, juridical and ecclesiastical authorities whose probity and intelligence there is not the slightest excuse to deny. So that was probably, it, it certainly was not the first um, case of Jewish ritual murder in Europe, which had actually been occurring for hundreds of years at this time. But it is one of the most documented and one of those cases which isn't open to dispute. Yeah, I think, I think the first one was um, 1144, uh, William of Norwich, which was in Britain. But um, just to go back to the Simon of, of Trent one, and one of the things that's always said about these cases is, oh, well, yeah, but the, the uh, confession was, was got under torture and the people were tortured. But what people, most people don't realize is that any confession that was taken from torture had to be corroborated at a later time when the accused was not in pain and under normal conditions. So they had every chance to recant these Jews to say, look, we just said that while we were under torture, and they didn't. So when you hear that these um, confessions were extracted under torture, you, you've got to remember that they corroborated that at a later time when they were not being tortured. 
I mean, our ancestors, they, they weren't, you know, um, bloodthirsty and, and unjust. You know, when they tortured people, it was to get the truth out of them. They weren't just torturing them for the fun of it. They wanted to get the truth out of them. So, so to make certain that it was the truth, at a later time, when, when they were just under normal conditions, they would go back and ask them, you know, are you still standing by what you said when you were in pain? And, and in all these cases, they, they stayed by what, what they actually said. And in a lot of instances, they were really proud of what they had actually done. They, they, when they went to be burnt at the stake, these Jews would, would be saying, we're proud of doing this. And they saw themselves as, as being marchers for, for Judaism. Because the, the, the actual blood of, of, the, of the Christian child was required for their liturgy. It's actually part of their liturgy. And, and one of the remarkable things with this Simon of Trent case was that um, these Jews were talking in an unknown dialect of Yiddish because they were German Jews and this took place in, in Italy. And they had a very obscure dialect that nobody actually knew for 500 years. It wasn't until 500 years after this case in the, in the last century that they went back over this and they worked out what these Jews were actually saying. And it, it all confirmed exactly what the case was. And at the time it was written down that they were talking devil's gibberish because it wasn't understood what they were actually saying. But what they were actually saying is that they were giving in, in great details exactly what these, what the rituals were that they were doing and why the piercings had been done in certain places and what was supposed to be said um, at the time when, those, when the piercings were done, exactly what was supposed to be done with the blood. And they had a, a trade in blood at the time. They would drain the blood from the Christian child and then they would, they would dry it out and then they would use it in their Kabbalah and in their, their magical practices. And it was worth a lot of money. It, it was worth, you know, a hell of a lot of money. You know, it, it was, and it was much easier for them to kidnap a Christian child and, and drain him of his blood than to castrate him and sell him as a slave to the Muslims because they would have to then transport the child out of Europe over to um, Turkey to sell them to, to, or over to Africa to, to sell them to the Muslims. Much easier for them to kidnap a child, drain him of his blood, and then they could sell that blood to the community because it was required for the community to use this blood in their, in their Passover feast. Now, I've got to say, I, I'm getting a lot of this information from a book called Blood Passover, which is by, it's actually by a Hungarian Jew who's called Ariel Twast. He's the son of the chief rabbi of Rome. And he, he set out with his, from a university in Tel Aviv, and he set out with his, with his university to look into this to prove that the so-called blood libel was false. And he couldn't prove that it was false, and he found that actually it was true. And there's, the whole book is just a mountain of evidence going through all the, all the court trials. And he's on the... the um, publicised the fact that this um, they were talking in this obscure Yiddish dialect that wasn't even known at, at the time. And when his book was just produced in, in Yiddish, they produced another problem with it. But when it was the English translation was produced, it was taken off the shelves and he was forced to recant. And in his way of recanting was to say that um, they were donors. There, there, was, there was a sale in blood and there were voluntary donors 
and that people actually sold their children to these Jews so that they could drain them of the blood. So uh, basically he set out to, to disprove it all, but he in actual fact proved it. So I mean, I'm getting a lot of this um, information from there. It's, it's, a, it's a very good book. I mean, I really recommend anybody reading it, even though it is it's written by a Jew. It goes into a lot of detail and why they were actually doing this, and, and it goes back into um, to, it's all to do with their, with their Passover ritual. And the, and the Jews will say, "Ah, oh, yes, but it says in the Old Testament that we're not allowed to touch blood, so we're not allowed to drink blood." And, then, and that's what they actually said at the court. But in their um, one of their midrashes, it, it says that that's, that's talking about animal blood. So they say, well, it's not talking about human blood. We're allowed to use human blood. And there's actually a bit from the, from the Talmud, which they actually changed, which has a reference to it. Um, I'll, I'll just read this, this bit from the Talmud here. It says, a man is killed, leaving a son of a tender age in the care of his mother. When the father's heirs approach up and say, let him grow up with us, and the mother say, let him grow up with me, he, the boy, should be left with the mother and should not be entrusted to the care of anyone entitled to inherit from him. A case of this kind happened in the past, and the heirs killed him on Passover Eve. And then it says, we shashah And we know that the Hebrew verb shashet has the meaning of butcher, kill, as well as to immolate, as for example, as a sacrifice. As for as example, Exodus 12, 31, thou shalt sacrifice the Passover lamb. So there are instances of it from in the Talmud. There are, there are records of it that go right back to uh, to BC. In actual fact, I've got the uh, first reference here. Democritus, who was around the first or the second century BC, and he wrote that every seven years the Jews uh, had to have a, a sacrifice, a human sacrifice. And then in the first century, you had um, uh, Appion, who Flavius Josephus wrote against, and he uh, talked about this Antiochus Epiphany, this Greek who was stretched out, and he was discovered in the, in the Jews' temple. He was he stretched out in their temple, and he'd been forced to sacrifice. And it was an annual sacrifice, and the Jews would drink the blood and, and save the viscera. So there was this, this, this link going back with blood all, all the way back, back to then. And then later on in the, uh, in the 5th century, you've got a reference to it in the Historia Ecclesiastica, that the Jews had crucified a Christian child at, at Purim. Because the Passover is, is a week after Purim. And, and at Purim, is a festival uh, to do with Esther and Haman and what they do, they basically, they transferred the, the idea of, of, ha, of uh, Haman, who was the, the guy that uh, tried to alert the Persian king to the Jews and have the Jews killed in the book of Esther. And they, so at Purim, they bake these cakes into the shape of ears, and they call them Haman's ears. And they would also, they would put, um, basically make uh, up, like dummies and crucify them and then eventually there were cases of them actually crucifying real Christians at Purim and then from there the week after which was Passover they then started using the, the uh, blood of the children 
in their rituals at the Passover. And, and part, <clears throat> which they would then put in the cakes, and they would put it in with the wine. And there's a link with this when they do their circumcisions, because the, the guy that does the circumcision gets the blood from the, um, from the circumcision and then spits it into wine and then puts it on the, on the child's lips. And they, they drink this wine as well. So you've actually got links of it in their rituals that they do today, in their um, circumcision. You've got a link with this, this blood drinking there. And you've got records that they don't argue about, about them taking Christian slaves and castrating them and then selling them on to the Muslims. So you've got actually accepted bits which the Jews themselves accept that they do, which point to there being no prescription on them drinking blood and also show that they were not shy of, of hacking um, Christian boys about and abducting them. And they will try and say that it's a libel about these these um, ritual murder cases, these child ritual murder cases. And it, it, yet there's never been a case in court where they've proved that it was just a libel. In actual fact, you know, 95% of these court cases, uh, the, the Jews were found guilty of this. And there was overwhelming evidence. As I say, there was confessions, there was witnesses, there was the bodies being, being found there. <clears throat> And yet, I, mean, I, can, I can go into a, a, a bit more about this, this circumcision bit because it, a lot of it is, is cannibalism. You know, I think this is probably where the, um, where the ideas and, and the tales and the folk or the vampires actually come from, was the Jews and what they were doing here. And do you want to add something, Bill, before I um, well, give you a description of this circumcision ritual? Right. The vampire story was um, what was actually projected onto a, a, a great Christian who, who sought to um, defend his nation from Jews and from the Turks, and that was Vladdy and Paler. And he's known in, in, in basically, I, I don't want to say history, because it's really sort of like a, a Jewish pop story, which, which has... Um, grafted itself onto history, Vlad the Impaler is known as Dracula, and, and all the man did was steadfastly seek to defend his nation against the Jews and the Turks. So, so they've demonized a Christian with, with that label and, and that vampire image when they themselves should wear it. And, and that's another case of Jewish projection they they like to project their crimes and their nature onto others, and and that way they can hide in the crowd. The um the one thing I would like to say is that even Arnold Lees and and a lot of um the people who who expose Jewish ritual murder, they like to um to take that back to the Old Testament and began with the story of the sacrifice of Isaac by his father, which was never consummated, of course. And what they are doing is that they are taking the story of Abraham and Isaac out of its historical context, and they are actually um, misusing it or abusing it 
to support the idea that Jews love to, or, or that the people of the Old Testament are the Jews and they love to sacrifice their children. In actuality, if you actually read the Old Testament, first, um, human sacrifice and child sacrifice were um, pretty common in the ancient world, especially amongst the tribes of the Canaanites. And second, the entire history of the children of Israel in the Old Testament separates the fact that the children of Israel did not do such things by their own customs, but that those customs, when they allowed the Canaanites into their lands and mingled with them, they learned those customs from the tribes of the Canaanites who regularly practiced those things as a part of their religious culture. So these um, tendencies towards ritual murder of infants and child sacrifice are actually learned by the Israelites from the Canaanites. And, and once the history of the Old Testament is properly understood, we can prove that the Jews are not the Israelites of the Old Testament. They are the Canaanites of the Old Testament. That is their true origin. They had um, been subsumed into Judea and, and, and basically infiltrated and took over the Israelite tradition and custom, claiming it as their own, but they went on by continuing to practice their ancient evil customs, amongst which are child sacrifice and blood libel. And, and, and the Jews of, of modern times are basically the ancient Canaanites who, have, who are acting as they have always acted. They are acting, it's their genetic nature to be filthy, perverted murderers and, and cannibals. And everything that you see in the Old Testament of the Canaanites is found in the Jews of today. By their fruits, Christ said, you shall know them. Read about the Canaanites in the Old Testament. Don't just read the story of Abraham and Isaac and then go look at these practices of the Jews, and you, you will see that the apples did not fall far from the tree. So, so that's an important distinction to make. <clears throat> I think actually in the, in the Talmud, they, they walk the story of um, Isaac. They say that he was actually killed, and he wasn't actually an actual sacrifice, and then um, he was resurrected again. <clears throat> And there's a few cases of that in, in the Talmud. So they actually walk that um, that story. Hang on, I'll just let me sip the water. Well, the Jews have been trying to manufacture their own Messiah for, for, for thousands of years as they poke fun at the Messiah and mock and scoff at the Messiah, well, which is also according to their nature. Well, this this was part of it. I mean, with, with this curing thing as well, they they would um, damage the churches. There are uh, cases of them breaking into churches and, and hacking up the the crosses and, and defiling the churches. 
and this was all part of it. It, it was all um, like hatred directed at Christianity, and, and part uh, all the um, at this at the parson, which is supposed to be um, the memory of the uh, angel of death passing over in Egypt. They pronounced all the curses that were pronounced against supposed pronounced against Egypt, supposedly pronounced against Egypt, and they change it so the curses are all directed towards the Christian nations and towards the Gentiles and the Goyim. And, and part of the rituals with this cursing is this drinking of this wine. And the wine has to have this blood in it and, and the bread has to have this blood in it as well from a Christian child. And the way that the blood has to be drawn, it has to be done in front of a, a rabbi and it has to be official. And the people that were selling this blood in the Middle Ages, they had the proper certificates from the rabbis to say that this was Christian blood. They had special um, leather pouches that were specially created for the purpose of, of um, transferring this blood around about the place, with a waxed uh, pouch, a leather pouch. They obviously, you know, it'd probably be worth more, more than gold, this stuff. And they had to have it for their liturgy. It was, it was an important part of, of their liturgy at the Passover. It wasn't all the, the Jews that were doing this, but the, it was a, a certain sect of them that, that this was essential to their beliefs. And there, there was certain, certain, it was the Ashkenaz, part of the Ashkenazi that were doing it, who are obviously the majority of Jews today. 90% of them are Ashkenazi, and it was Ashkenazi Jews that were, that were responsible for this. But even the, um, the, the Sephardim Jews, they were responsible for the castration of, of the Christian children uh, and uh, sending them off to the Muslims. It, it, so it, it, the, the rights that they had are actually linked to um, uh, circumcision. And there's a, one of the things that they used to do with the circumcision is that they used to actually eat the foreskins. There's a record of this. And I just um, read this. Magical cannibalism, they called it. This is from the, um, the Blood Passover, page 52. One form of magical cannibalism related to circumcision may be found in a custom highly widespread among both the Ashkenazi Jewish communities and the Jewish communities of the Mediterranean region. The women present at the circumcision ceremony, but not yet blessed with the progeny of the male sex, anxiously awaited the cutting of the foreskin of the child. At this point, throwing inhibition to the winds, as if at a pre-established signal, the women hurled themselves upon that piece of bloody flesh. The luckiest woman is alleged to have snatched it up and gulped it down immediately before she could be mobbed by the competing females who must have been no less hardened and highly motivated. The triumphant winner was in no doubt whatever that the proud tidbit would be infallibly useful in causing the much coveted virile member to germinate inside the impregnated abdomen through sympathetic medicine. The struggle for the foreskin among women without male progeny appears in some ways similar to today's competition among spinsters and nubile for the conquest of the bride's bouquet after the wedding ceremony. Rabbi Shabbatai Lipschutz confirmed this extraordinary custom as a struggle among the women to swallow the foreskin after the cutting of the foreskin as a wonderful secret segula, in the production of male children. He added there were rabbis who permitted it 
such as the famous North African Kabbalist, Haim Yosef David Azule, known as the China, the Enigma, and the rabbi from Salonika, Haim Abraham Miranda, while others energetically prohibited it, considering it a scandalous and impermissible practice. But the Kabbalistic herb alchemist, Raphael Ohana, expert in the secrets of procreation, although he possessed little skill in gynecological sciences, referred with satisfaction to the results obtained from women having swallowed the foreskin of a circumcised boy, even in recent times. In his guide, intended for women wishing to have children, and entitled Mera Hayeladin, he who shows the children, the expert North African rabbi advised that to make it more appetizing, the unusual dish be covered with honey, like a homemade sweet. The magical and empirical tradition linked to the foreskin of circumcision as a feast-undating element was not lost over the course of the centuries, but was protected by the secrets of the practical Kabbalah, despite the disdainful opposition of rationalistic rabbis. So you've got records of them swallowing these foreskins because blood was played such a large part in their recipes and in their remedies. And it was all part of their their rituals. And this, this is stuff that people are here today and they just wouldn't believe it. But, you know, this is what we actually have records of them doing. And the, the amount of, of, the, of the Christian children that they actually took I mean, on record, I mean, it must be hundreds of them. We've got over, um, over 20 saints, over 20 of these children were actually beatified as being marchers for being ritually murdered by these Jews. And we've got no record of it whatsoever happening in Britain until shortly after the Jews first came into the country. I mean, it was within, yeah, 1144, so about 80 years after the Jews first came into Britain, we had um, William Norwich, which is the first documented ritual murder of them. It was a Christian servant that actually saw the murder. And there was another Jewish convert at the time that converted to Christianity that said that the Jews drew lots at Narbon in, in France for where the crucifixion would, would take place. And it would have to take place on the Passover in, in one town or, or city or place. This crucifixion would have to take place and the Jews would have, would have to take a Christian child and they have to be under the age of seven years old. And then they would, would circumcise them, crucify them, and drain them of the blood. And the next one after 1144 is 1147 in Würzburg, which is in Germany. And then after that, you've got, you've got one about every four or five years, right the way through the Middle Ages. In, in, in just in Britain, you, you had Norwich, uh, 1144, you had Gloucester, 1169, Bury St. Edmunds, 1183, Winchester, 1192, Norwich, 1235, again, parts of the ritual that they were actually using. I mean, this was all, um, what's the word for it? It was all an organized thing that was known by all of them. 
it, it was the rich ones that, that were doing this as well. It, it, it was to do with the bankers, and, and it was um, centered around the places where the money lenders were, and a lot of the money lenders themselves um, were involved in this. But of course, they would drive their way out of it, so that they would, you know, they they wouldn't get uh, punished. And, and part of this, part of this knowledge, I mean, that they were they were people used as doctors as well. These um, Jews were, so I, I dare say they, they managed to kill quite a few Christians just with, um, with the new of, of physiognomy and use, using these trusting Christians that needed help from the doctor that would go to a Jew, and, and then the Jew would end up deliberately killing them or, or poisoning them, draining draining them of blood. I mean, it's just really really sick and to think that they cover this up completely and say that it's a blood libel when there's no libel involved in it it's all truth you know it, it beggars belief like i have a, <clears throat> a friend who was at university quite some years back and he said that at the university they had all these books to do with this all these records to do with um jewish ritual murder on the, you know old records of it going, you know going back a couple of hundred years few hundred years because you know, this was really well documented. And he went back there a few years back, and all these books had disappeared. There were no, none of them anymore there in the university. So the Jews have obviously removed the books to do with this. And, you know, they, they keep saying that it's it's just a libel. Uh, <clears throat> the uh, Muslims uh, seem to be promoting it now. There was, uh, in Syria, uh, one of the people in the Syrian government has written a book on it, I think, called Matso Zion, and they want to make a film film about it. And that there's more references to the to the ritual murders now coming from the Middle East than there are from Europe. But what they're actually referring to most of the time over there is um, events that happened in Europe. It did happen a few times over there in the Middle East. It happened in um, Syria. There was a Damascus affair um, where there was a, a Christian doctor and his servant that were both killed in, in a ritual way, but that, that wasn't children that were adopted, that was, that was adults. And there's, there's, there's very few instances where it's been a, a, a girl, but there have been a couple of instances where it's a girl, but usually it's a, it's a boy of under seven years of age. I, mean, I think there's, the most, there's been ones that happened this century in, in Russia, and in the Ukraine, and when you hear of these children that, that um, go missing uh, on the news and what have you, I mean, that it's the Jewish community that, that the police should be investigating. But if anybody was to say that, it would be instantly be called an anti-Semite. Yet all the evidence that we have points points to them being responsible for this, and it being an essential part of their religion, an essential part of the, the rituals that they have at, at their Passover. Well, I, I a few years ago, I did a, uh, I'm sorry, a few years ago I did a podcast called Lambs to the Slaughter and, and wrote an article of that title and, and um, I made these same assertions that every time a missing child in modern times, every time a child turns a child turns up missing, we should search the synagogues. That the um, the, the 
Christian people of Europe and America had become totally disconnected somehow to the true nature of the Jews, and, and, and probably because the, ter- the churches have been teaching lies about the Jews and, and who they are, and, and the media is controlled by the Jews, so they're all brainwashed by the Jews and, and into believing that the Jews are just some other white people with a different religion. And, and, and that is suicidal. It, it's like believing that the parasites that infest your body are more or less pets, that, that they're harmless, that they're okay, that it's good to have them around the house. And, and just the opposite is true. They're going to destroy you. In, in the, if you look at the um, missing children, and, and I understand that that this was very little documented and, and statistics weren't really kept that well in the early years of our nation here in America. But if you look at accounts of missing children, you won't read that there were all, we've always had our runaways and, and we've always had the occasional um, white man who committed the terrible crime. There's no doubt. But, the cases of missing children and, and talk of missing children um, blossomed and, and, and probably in, in, in the early 1900s, and, and that's when, that, that's not long after, Jews started immigrating into America in large numbers. And the cases of missing children has increased with the prevalence of Jews throughout American society. Now, I'm not saying that all missing children are victims of Jews, but most of these missing children never turn up anywhere. And, and, and well, it seems to me that highly plausible that the Jews have never ceased from these practices of Jewish ritual murder, which people in the Middle Ages were not afraid to document. Today, people are afraid to accuse Jews, even suspect Jews. They're afraid for loss of their livelihoods, for loss of their, their lives, and, and it, it's a shame, but that's the, the state of apostasy that formerly, well, well, I should say white, formerly Christian people had fallen into that we won't even see these devils for what they really are. My great-grandmother had a story, and, and it's a story that I don't think I've repeated yet on my podcasts or on Internet radio, but I'll repeat it now. This story was transmitted to me through my, um, my father's first cousin. She would be close to 80 years old now, and, and she told me this story about five years ago, perhaps. My great-grandmother came here from Baden in Germany in the early 1890s with her family. She was a young girl. She was maybe about seven years old. And her father had a rather large family. They had seven or eight children, and she had a younger sister. And she said that one day the health authorities for for the city of New York, because they first lived in Brooklyn before they moved to a farm upstate, the health authorities had come and taken her little sister away, who had blonde hair and blue eyes. 
claiming that she had some some sickness and she had to be um, sequestered. So, so they took her away. And a few weeks later, they brought back a brown-haired, brown-eyed girl, insisting that that was her sister and that her parents were so afraid of the authorities that they accepted the brown-haired, brown-eyed girl. That's the story that my great-grandmother told her granddaughter, who was my father's first cousin. And that's always something that I would like to get more details of, but I don't think that, um, I don't think that they're available. I don't know. That's um, just a personal antidote. However, the number of missing children throughout the West has indeed escalated, and, and this can be seen what with escalated each year greater and greater in, in basic um, harmony with the concentration of power in the hands of the Jews throughout the West. I, I think that's pretty easy to see. These cases of Jewish ritual murder that we have documented for, for perhaps 600 years of our history, and all of a sudden, nobody's talking about it any longer. And, and when children disappear, nobody thinks of, of, of these aliens amongst us as the culprits. Yeah, <clears throat> I say, I, the records of it, an abundance of, of records of it, and it, it never happened, well, it didn't happen in Britain until after the Jews came here. It never happened in, in the first um, thousand years after Christ, although it did happen in other places, say the, the fifth century, it was, uh, it was a record of it in the Historia Ecclesiastica. I, I think Eusebius wrote about it in the third century, about about the Jews sacrificing a Christian child. And this, this is a thing I, I mean, people try and attack Christianity today, but all of this was, it was Christian children that were being abducted and tortured to death in horrific ways and having their blood drained from them. And then the blood was being used to make magic curses aimed at Christians. This, this is why they would, they would crucify these children and do these sort of tortures to them and, and then aim all that at the Christian nations and at the Gentile nations who had been kind enough to allow these Jews into their countries. And this is, this is what they did. This is what they did to us. You know, if you, if you help the Jews, then... Yeah, you will hate you for it, and they and they'll. I mean, it's just it's disgusting what they actually did. And you had um, other when they tried to Christianize some of the Jews and and, um, and baptize them. Some of these these Jews that, that became nominal Christians, in quotes, you know, they would talk about this stuff and explain it and say yes, you know, and they would confirm that this is what these. These other Jews were doing. I suppose they were a bit like um, the brother Nathaniel's of the day. Some of them were. I know the majority of them um, borrowed their way in, into the church and corrupted it and subverted it from within. But there were certain others that witnessed against this sort of stuff going on. I mean, there. Um, there I think there was a, an Oprah Winfrey show. Um, a couple of years back, and it had a, a, a Jewess on there that was talking about this very thing. 
that I, I don't think the, the audience were aware that this was a common thing and there was a record of it. It was being seen as, as like a, a shock and Satanist thing, you know, because you hear these rumors today of Satanists doing this, this sort of stuff. But it, it's not Satanists, it, it's Jews, it, it's Jewish behavior, and it's directed at, at Christians with, with absolute hatred for Christianity and, and white people. I mean, and white people and Christianity are, are inseparable, basically. You know, you, you, Christianity is a part of the white people. And when they're, when they're attacking Christianity, it's as important to them as, as attacking you know, white people themselves. There's no difference, really, between the two as far as, as, far as the Jews see it. That's why they may make so much effort in, into attacking it and mocking it and, and changing the, the teachings of it. And well, to absolutely. Say, and and Judeo-Christianity is basically the best religion that Jewish money can buy for Gentiles because they actually forget Jesus and worship Jews. It's incredible. And, and they don't even see what they're doing because they don't read the scripture in context. The, the, I'd like to read a couple of these cases from Arnold Lees from chapter 7 of, of his work on Jewish ritual murder. That these, um, A lot of people might want to dismiss Arnold Lees as some kind of crazy anti-Semite, just like they want to dismiss Martin Luther as a crazy anti-Semite. But like, unlike Martin Luther, who simply made the accusations or... or, or repeated what he had read re as, as reported, Lees actually has documentation that can be searched out and worked. And, and, and when you see the documentation from things like um, John Fox and his Book of Martyrs or, or the, the Magdeburg Centuries, but which is a, um, a volume of Protestant Christian history written by early Lutherans, 16th century Lutherans, but when you read these cases that, that are put forth by Arnold and test some of the documentation, at least as much as we can find, you have to, um, ha have to dismiss hundreds of, of legitimate European, white European Christian scholars in favor of the frantic denials of the Jews if you dismiss the fact of Jewish ritual murder throughout medieval history in Europe and, and in Britain. The um, work of Arnold Lees from chapter 7 of his work on Jewish ritual murder, which I will link to this podcast when it's presented on the front page of my website this afternoon, Christogenia. He says, Jewish ritual murder in England before the expulsion of 1290. And makes a makes a case, and a good case, that it was primarily Jewish ritual murder, which caused the expulsion of Jews from England in 1290. And he says, the first known case happened in 1144. After that, cases cropped up from time to time until the Jews were expelled from the realm by Edward I. 
the most famous of these cases was that of little St. Hugh of Lincoln's in 1255. I record these cases in chronological order, and I do not deny the possibility of some of them in which details are lacking being trumped up ones where death may have been due to causes other than ritual murder and the Jews blamed for it. But the case of St. Hugh particularly was juridically decided, and the close and patent roles of the realm record definitely cases at London, Winchester, and Oxford. There seems no reason to doubt that many cases of ritual murder have been unsuspected and even undiscovered. Now, now these cases have to be understood in historical context because the Jews, the, the Jews, as Martin Luther reports, got away with crime after crime after crime under the protection of the kings and other nobles of Europe because the Jews were actually a protected class of citizens. They were chattel property of the kings and princes. So basically, as long as they were in the land, they belonged to the kings and princes of Europe. And the kings and princes of Europe had the impression that they were using the Jews as tax collectors and to facilitate commerce in Europe. In reality, the Jews were using the nobility so that they could subvert, infiltrate, and destroy medieval Europe. And they did. So the impression that nobles had of the Jews was um, not quite like the impression the Jews had of the nobles. From 1144, back to Arnold Norwich, a 12-year-old boy was crucified and his side pierced at the Jewish Passover. His body was found in a sack hidden in a tree. A converted Jew named Theobald of Cambridge confessed that the Jews took blood every year from a Christian child because they thought that only by doing so could they ever obtain their freedom and return to Palestine and that it was their custom to draw lots to decide whence the blood was to be supplied. Theobald said that last year the lots fell to Narbonne, but in this year to Norwich. The boy was locally beatified and has ever since been known as St. William. The sheriff, probably bribed, refused to bring the Jews to trial, and I must say that the Jews were right about one thing, it took an awful lot of Christian blood to allow the bastards to go back to Palestine. There's no doubt, just not in the way that the Jews even imagined. Least goes on to say, in J.C. Cox's Norfolk Churches, Volume 2, page 47, as also in the Victoria Country History of Norfolk, 1906, Volume 2, is an illustration of an old painted rude screen depicting the ritual murder of St. William. The screen itself is in the Loden Church in Norfolk. Unless the power of Jewish money has had it removed, no one denies this case as a historical event. But the Jews, of course, say it was not a ritual murder. The Jew wrought in his 
the ritual murder libel and the Jew, written in 1935, says, modern inquirers, after careful examination of the facts, have concluded that the child probably lost consciousness in consequence of a cataleptic fit and was buried prematurely by his relatives. How these modern inquiries arrived at a conclusion like that after all these years, Mr. Roth does not say. Nor is it a compliment to the church to suggest that its ministers would allow the boy's death to be celebrated as a martyrdom of a saint without having satisfied themselves that the wounds on the body confirmed the crucifixion and the piercing of the side, and why the relatives should bury the boy in a sack and then dig it up and hang it in a tree would puzzle even a Jew to explain. John Fox's Acts and Monuments of the Church records this ritual murder, as did the Bollandists and other historians. The prior, William Turbay, who afterwards became Bishop of Norwich, was the leading light in insisting that the crime was one of Jewish ritual murder in the Dictionary of National Biography, which was edited by a Jew. It is made clear that his career, quite apart from this ritual murder case, is that of a man of great strength, of character and moral courage. So, so we have several um, medieval witnesses, which Arnold Lee cites here in support of the facts of this case of William of Norwich. 1160, Gloucester. The body of a child named Harold was found in the river with the usual wounds of crucifixion. Sometimes it is wrongly dated to 1168, and Lee says that this is recorded in the Monumenta Germanica Historica, Volume 6, 1181, at Bury St. Edmunds. A child called Robert was sacrificed at Passover. The child was buried in the church, and its presence there was supposed to cause miracles. And, and Lee says that this is cited in the Chronicle of Gervas of Canterbury. 1192 in Winchester, a boy was crucified. Lee says that this is mentioned in the Jewish encyclopedia as being a false charge. So Lee records the Jewish refutation of, of this crime. However, he doesn't have details recorded of the crime itself. He admits that they are lacking. 1232, in the same place in Winchester, a boy was crucified. And it was mentioned in Hyamson's History of the Jews in England. And also in the annals of Winchester, although there were no details, and he says it is conclusively mentioned in the records of Winchester in the close roll 16 under the time of Henry III, and he gives a particular citation. 1235 in Norwich. In this case, the Jews stole a child and hid him with a view to crucifying him. 
Hayden's Dictionary of Dates of date 1847 says of this case, they, meaning the Jews, circumcise and attempt to crucify a child at Norwich. The offenders are condemned in a fine of 20,000 marks. And, and Lease gives further citations for this case and the veracity of it in, in um, the title of a French work that I won't even try to pronounce here. I'm sorry. 1244 in London, a child's body found unburied in a cemetery of St. Benedict with ritual cuts, buried with great pomp in St. Paul's. In other words, they, they, they found the child unburied and they buried him what, with the ceremony. And that's recorded in Social England, Volume 1, page 407, edited by H.D. Trail. 1255 in Lincoln. A boy called Hugh, this is Hugh of Lincoln, was kidnapped by the Jews and crucified and tortured in hatred of Jesus Christ. The boy's mother found the body in a well on the premises of a Jew named Jopin or Copinus. This Jew promised by the judge his life if he confessed did so, and 91 Jews were arrested. Eventually, 18 were hanged for the crime. King Henry III himself personally ordered the judicial investigation of the case five weeks after the discovery of the body and refused to allow mercy to be shown to the Jew Copinus, who was executed. Hugh was locally beatified, and his tomb may be still... Be his tomb may still be seen in the Lincoln Cathedral, but the Jewish money power has evidently been at work. For between 1910 and 1930, a notice was fixed above the shrine as follows, and least quotes. The body of Hugh was given burial in the cathedral and treated as that of a martyr. When the minster was repaid, the skeleton, of a small child was found beneath the present tombstone. There are many incidents in the story which tend to throw doubt upon it, and the existence of similar stories in England and elsewhere points to their origin in the fanatical hatred of the Jews of the Middle Ages and the common superstition, now wholly discredited, that ritual murder was a factor of the Jewish Paschal rites, meaning the Passover. Attempts were made as early as the 13th century by the church to protect the Jews against the hatred of the populace and against this particular accusation. So what least characterizes that notice quite appropriately is the work of the Jewish money and Jewish economic power to cover for their crimes and shroud their true nature and their history. Lease goes on to say, at a recent visit to Lincoln of the Jewish Historical Society in 1934, the mayor, Mr. G. Deere, said to them that he was done to death by Jews for ritual purposes, cannot be other than a libel based upon the prejudices of an ignorance of an unenlightened age. 
the Chancellor on the same occasion said it was quite obviously one of the very many cases of slander spread about the Jews from time to time. No doubt the child died or fell down the well. So we see Christian Englishmen in the 1930s falling over themselves to kiss the asses of the Jews. These people, Jews and Gentiles, bring no evidence whatever for their statements. It couldn't have happened, they say. And Lise asks, why not? And he goes on to say, in defense of the fact that this was indeed a Jewish ritual murder, he goes on to say, was Henry III, weak in character as we know him to have been, ever charged with being an immoral man? Did the judges not examine the body, which was only four weeks dead? Is Hayden's Dictionary of Dates medieval and superstitious when it said of this case, they, meaning the Jews, crucify a child at Lincoln, for which 18 are hanged? There are no ifs, ands, or buts here. Or does Copenus's confession not tally with that of Theobald, quoted above in the first Norwich case? Copenus said, for the death of this child, nearly all the Jews in England had come together, and every town had sent deputies to assist in the sacrifice. No one questions the historical facts in his case, but Jews and Judaized Gentiles unite in denying the fact of ritual murder. Strack, in his book, The Jew and Human Sacrifice, now Strack is a Jew, written in defense of the Jews against the blood accusation, omits all mention of this famous case, which is the subject of the Prioress's tale of Chaucer and is referred to in Marlowe's Jew of Malta, Hyamson's History of the Jews in England devotes the whole chapter 9 to little St. Hugh of Lincoln, showing the importance of the Jewish murder issue in the Jewish mind today. The following close roles of the realm refer to the case of St. Hugh, and Leach actually provides a lengthy list of the official documentation in what the British call the roles of the realm, the close roles of the realm, from the time of Henry III, which mentioned this case and described this case. It, it, um, the ritual murder of Hugh of Lincoln, like that of Simon of Trent, is certainly accompanied by a large amount of corroborating evidence from official government and ecclesiastical documents. It can't be disputed. If we dispute cases like this, we are actually we are actually despising the the testimonies and the judgment of many of our own Christian ancestors and predecessors. It, it's what we are um, flushing our own ancestors down the drain for the benefit of the Jews. We're throwing our own 
ancestors under the bus, as they like to say in the modern American colloquial, for the benefit of the Jews. There's no doubt. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the main main points uh, that you brought up there at the beginning. Um, the Jews were seen as chattel. They were owned by the king. They were, they were the king's property as, as tax collectors. So when you hear of the Jews being burnt at the stake or being decapitated, you know, that wasn't a, an unruly mob. That was after these Jews had been at a trial in a court with, with the, being owned by the king. So, you know, it was weighted to them actually being found innocent rather than them being found guilty. And every one of these cases went to trial. Every one of them. You know, it, it literally, as you say, there was copious amounts of evidence that were, you know, indicting them as, as the, of the original murders. It, it's not like we're talking reports that were in the tabloid newspapers. But these, these are the... Um, written down records of the highest law courts in the land and it, it, it continually right through the Middle Ages and to, to say that um, you know that, that, that this is some kind of libel or, or it's just made up and, and in Britain I mean it, we invented the the, um, the jury court and the jury way of holding the court so apparently so you know and that was just around about this time. So they can't say that um, this, this was all false. And after they, the Jews were actually expelled from England in 1290, where they went to, most of them ended up in Savoy. And, and in 1329, that's when there was, a, there was an, another ritual murder, but, but in, in, in Savoy. And you can see how pleased the uh, British people were with the king King Edward for doing that because they all put a penny each in to to pay him to give him to give him some money for doing that because they were so grateful for what he had done and the in the record of it in the in the Chronicles of England it says that the reason reason doesn't actually mention the ritual murder but it says it's for for usury uh, and misbelief that's I, I haven't just double checked it now but I can remember looking at it and it, and it said usury and misbelief. I think it may have been general mistreatment of, of the people. No, I don't think it actually specifically mentions the, um, the ritual murders, but I'm sure there'll be some later on in, in the book, as you know, I'm, I'm reading through that, that chronicles of England at the moment. But our law courts were not corrupt, and the only thing that they ever say about this, and this is what really annoys me, they just say, oh, it was a libel. And they don't actually come up with any evidence as to why it was a libel. There's no evidence to um, counteract the historical record or to, or to counteract what, what the courts wrote down, what the court recorders wrote down for, for the future, knowing that this was going to be a historical record for the generations to come. You know, the Jews have never come up with anything to, to counteract it. They just call it a libel for some reason. And people go along with it. You know, I mean, as far as I know, I'm aware, you can't just say oh, something's a libel. And that makes it untrue. It has to be proven to be a libel. You know, you have courts that you go to and you show that you're being libeled. And this has never been the case, ever. There's not one case where the Jews have been to court to prove that one of these accusations was a libel. 
because they can't, because they know that if the evidence was were to actually be looked into, they would just be convicted all over again, because people would see that it would be impossible for this to be untrue. And you, you've got the, the witnesses, you've got them um, confessing in, in another in, in a language that wasn't actually known at the time, and this it was on Simon in Trent. You've got them um, talking about uh, specific names for for the parts of the rituals that they were doing, for the specific incisions that they were that they were taking. You've got the reasons why they were um, actually doing it, and you've got the fact that when they were going to be burnt at the stake, they they weren't saying I'm innocent, I'm innocent. You know, they, they were proud of what they'd done. They saw themselves as being martyrs for Judaism. They were being punished for following Judaism, and and this was a part of Judaism, of Judaism, of Jewry. They saw it as this, this was an essential part of their of being a Jew was to do this at, at the Passover. That's why they, they had this. Um, it was all regimented. It was all all ordered. Everything that they did, and it was throughout the community. The rabbi had to had to watch it being done. They would collect the blood, and the rich Jews would would um, pay for the poorer Jews to have the certain amount of blood that was required for the rituals. They would dry the blood out so that it was in a powder, and then they would keep it in these special waxed leather pouches, and it, it became, you know, a, a product that they could sell. You know, as, as being the traders that they were, and I think obviously as time went on, they they became more um, discovered different ways of preserving this blood. And in Syria, I I think it was about a century ago, there was a customs people at customs, and there was a Jew that was crossing over, and he didn't, he was kept offering higher and higher amount of money for the customs not to look in his bag to see what was in the bag. When the customs guy did look in the bag, there were sealed jars with, with blood in them. And the, the Jew gave him some, uh, sold them off as some story or whatever and paid him off. But the, uh, the customs guy saw that, swore that it was blood that he, that he saw in, in, these, in these jars that, that got taken through into Syria. And he got records of him being, of being caught with these say with these leather pouches, wax leather pouches with, with dried blood that was, that was actually within them. You've got references to it in some of the Jewish literature. You've got like veiled references to it, and especially in their Kabbalah and in their magical stuff, there's references to it. But a, a lot of it was passed down orally, and there's references to it, the, the, the instructions and the, the wording of the rituals would be were actually passed down orally to to obviously because they didn't want it to be known by obviously by Christians that would find out they would obviously be be horrified if they would find out but a lot of the um, stuff from the from the Simon of Trent trial which was spoken in a dialect that was unknown for 500 years that actually deals with that. And that again, that's proof again that this, this is all true because they didn't know what these Jews were actually saying back then. But they, but they recorded it, you know, what the words were. And it, it's been translated now and you know, they were talking in great details as what it was that they were doing. And and this was confirmed all over Europe. And it wasn't like today where you where you have um, you know, we know instantly what's going on because we've got the internet. Before that, we had the newspapers, we had telephones, we could keep in contact. But 
and if you're out in, in, in the villages, it, it's all over Europe, you wouldn't know what's happening in Germany or what was happening in Bulgaria or, or the Ukraine, you know, or Serbia or any of these places. And yet, in all these places where the Jews were, this, this, this is what was happening. And the, the details that they gave when they were confessing, they, they all con- corroborated with all the other cases that had been dotted around Europe. There's this overwhelming evidence that these people were guilty. They said that they were guilty, and they said that they were proud of being guilty. Of being guilty. You know, in, in the same way that the, the Christian martyrs were, were proud of, of, of the truth and proud, and, and, and were not frightened to die because they'd been persecuted for Christ. And you would, you would, um, in a certain example, these Jews were the opposite of that. They were, they were the opposite. They were following this this um, death religion of, of crucifying little children and sending curses out onto their enemies and they saw that, that, that um, they were being persecuted for doing that for, for almost in the same way as, as, as like a Christian martyr but from the, from the other side so you know again that shows you that, that this, was, this was the truth this is what, this is what really happened and if you were an innocent man and you were going to be burnt alive or, or decapitated, you would be protesting your innocence right up until the end. You wouldn't be saying, well, I'm really proud of doing it. You know, one of the reasons why they, were, they would get caught was because they, they wouldn't bury the body. They, they, had spit, they, they were either to chuck the body in the river or they would just leave it in a field, which again is, is part from the Talmud. It's Talmudic instructions on, on that dealing with, with Gentile bodies. So this is why they were caught, and everything had been everything had been done strictly according to the instructions, and strictly according to the Talmudic practices. You know, it's, it's just it's just shocking. And the, uh, yeah, go on. Christ, Christians are, are at a great disadvantage, and and that disadvantage is their own ignorance. First. I can't blame Christians really for being ignorant of the Jews' language because it's not Hebrew. It, it's a corrupted, perverted. It, it, it's not even a language. It's like it, it's like a combination of spitting, coughing, and choking on words. That's what it sounds like. And if I wouldn't want to learn that language because it's it, it's satanic. The um, original Hebrew, of course, is probably nothing like it. Original Hebrew was what was the first um, one of the first forms of epic poetry and and lyric poetry that were what were extant in in our history. That the um, the other forms are also Semitic in their dialect, truly Semitic, not Jewish. True Semites were white. And that was Akkadian and, and um, Aramaic or Babylonian. The um, Jewish language it is um, practically impossible, I think, for, for any Aryan man to actually master or decipher. The um, other disadvantage that Christians have and, and this is the fault of Christians, is that they believe the Zohar and the Kabbalah to be ancient works somehow related to the Old Testament. Nothing can be further from the truth. 
The Zohar and the Kabbalah are works of perverted medieval Jews. And, and, and they're not ancient at all. While some of the statements that they make might be tied to the Old Testament or to ancient history, they are not ancient at all. They were developed by rabbis in the Middle Ages to, to basically um, codify their own wicked behavior. So when we read about this Zohar and this Kabbalah, Christians have the impression that these things have some sort of ancient religious authority, and that's a lie. They don't have any ancient religious authority at all. That they're basically the, um, the the works of criminal minds in the medieval period. There's ways to excuse their their madness, and just ways to twist what's actually in the Old Testament. I like to do. Um, to discriminate between the two, I, I see white people are Shemites. We are descended from Shem, and Shem is a patriarch, and that's a you know, patriarchal term. It's Shem and Shemite. The Jews don't use that term. They don't say they're Shemites or they're descended from Shem. They say they're Semites, and they have a Semitic language. So, you know, that's like saying Latin, which is, you know, the language of the brown people in, in South America. It's got nothing to do with the Romans. But they call it Latin. So, you know, I, I don't mind calling Semites Semites because it, to me it's, it's them um, admitting that they're not descended from Shem because they've taken the H out of it and, it's, and, this, and they admit that, it, that it's a, uh, a linguistic term. So it's, it's the same as Latin. I mean, that H, I mean, Abraham had an H put into his name to signify that he was holy. And the Jews have removed an H from the word Shem to use it themselves. So I, don't, I really don't mind calling them Semites or Semitic, but the language they use is it's a really bastardized um, mixture of a language using German and late Hebrew. It's just a, it's just a mess. I mean, the closest living language today, the closest language, which is the closest living language to Paleo-Hebrew, is Welsh. You know, and that, that's acknowledged by, that, well, it was acknowledged by uh, all the philologists up to about a century ago when the, um, you know, the universities started becoming infiltrated and taken over by the Jews. And that, that was acknowledged. And that is just one of the oldest living languages that we've got. And there are, I mean, you can, there are, when you translate the, the old Hebrew into, into Welsh, you don't have to change any of the idioms. It, they, all the idioms are the same, and there's uh, it's been quite a lot of research actually done into done into that. Uh, I, I wouldn't like to talk too much about it without further reference to it. But um, I can say with, with all confidence that Welsh is the, the closest language to the language today to Hebrew. It's definitely not Yiddish. I mean, the, the Jews would like to say that what, what they're doing is talking in Hebrew or, or translating stuff into Hebrew over there in Jewland, but they're not. It's not Hebrew at all. It's Yiddish. It's a, it's a repulsive language, and it's just full of insults to Christian people. Well, the Jews have to um, the Jews have done the Hebrew and, and the Arabs because the Arabs are only Canaanites and and mixed race bastards who, who um. 
who inherited a language that did not belong to them, but, but belonged to a pure race, white people, at one time. The Jews and the Arabs have both done to Hebrew and Aramaic what the Negroes in America have done to English. It, it's basically the same thing. And, and the Jews and the Arabs speak a, a language or languages derived from Hebrew and Aramaic in the same manner which the Negroes in America and aliens all over Britain speak English. Just because they speak the language today or, or a semblance of the language doesn't mean that it belonged to them in ancient times. And, and Hebrew belongs to the Jew about as much as English belongs to a Negro or to a Chinaman. And that's something that very few people understand. Annalise goes on to describe, in brief, other, um, or, or mention, a couple of these are only mentions, other incidents of Jewish ritual murder, which occurred after Hugh of Lincoln, which was 1255, which occurred in 1257, 1276, where a boy was crucified, 1279, where a child was crucified, and 1290. And one month after the case, which occurred in June of 1290, which is recorded in the, the, the patent rolls of the realm, only one month later did King Edward issue his decree expelling the Jews from the kingdom. There is then every reason to believe that it was the Oxford murder which proved the last straw in toleration. And Lees himself goes on to say that if we... He goes on to, to, to um, say, who should we believe in, in these cases? Should we believe... Uh, the Englishmen, or should we believe the Jews who are denying these cases when these cases are documented in so many of the official records, the close records of the realm are, the, are as you said, the official records of the English courts. So it, it's uh, Jewish ritual murder in the medieval period is virtually undeniable and that it went on for many hundreds of years is undeniable. And if anyone thinks that the nature of Jews has changed since then, well, then, then they're just fooling themselves because the nature of the Jews has not changed. You, know, you can see it traced all the way back in, in every one of these records. You're going right back to the, to the second century B.C., that was the first one that I managed to dig up. It's all talking about exactly the same behavior. So you can't say, oh, well, it was uh, just these uh, Khazar Jews that brought it in in the 6th or 7th century because it was going on before then. And that's what uh, in that uh, blood Passover, that's what he's trying to do, is he tries to make out that it's, it's the Ashkenazi branch, it's the Khazar branch, and, and not the... Um, and the Sephardic branch, but 
you know, with his both branches, because it goes back to second century BC. Now, whether that uh, that sort of coincides with after John Mercanus had um, uh, forced converted the Edomites into Judaism and the two became merged together. Whether it's something to do with that, I don't know. But the Edomites were well known for human sacrifice and their um, city, a good a city which was rediscovered centuries so back. And in the high places, they've still got all the sacrificial altars and it's all set up for human sacrifice. All of it. Right. So, and, um, and one more point I'd like to make, and, and that's because a lot of the the Nordicists or the, or the people that um, want to disdain Christianity and claim that the pagan religions are the original religions of Europe, which is not true. Let me say this, that, that in the Greek classics, you will find incidents of child sacrifice. And the Greeks did it too. So pagan Europeans shouldn't be so quick. And, and, and this is another fault of Christians is that they are totally oblivious to the classical literature. Pagan Europeans shouldn't be so quick to say that child sacrifice belonged to the Hebrews of the Old Testament. The Hebrews of the Old Testament, the true Israelites, disdained the idea and knew that it was evil. They knew that child sacrifice was evil. If you read Euripides or Aeschylus, you read plays written by these Greek poets of the 5th century BC, read Iphigenia among the Taurians. That, that's one example. Iphigenia was the daughter of Agamemnon the great leader of the Danan Greeks who conquered Troy. And he sacrificed his daughter on an altar for the sake of fair winds so that his navy could sail to Troy. And, and that's described in the Greek tragic poets. Not in one of them, but in two that I know of off the top of my head. So that there's... um records of child sacrifice in, amongst pagan Europe's as well as amongst the Hebrews of the Old Testament. That doesn't mean that Greeks or Hebrews are the, um, the sources of such evil. That only means that they um, both learned such evil from the wicked Canaanites, who were the actual purveyors of, of such evil in the ancient world, as the Hebrew Bible spells out, and who are the true ancestors of the Jews of today, who still practice those same things. You can say it's borne out by their, by their behavior right way through to today, isn't it? Right. They're still sacrificing our children, and now they're doing a, doing it openly in manners that most Christians actually support, like all the sacrifices of white Christians in these Jewish wars of retribution in the Middle East, which are really designed to flood Christian lands with Muslim refugees, and that's a 
topic for another program. And so we've also got uh, all the uh, abortions, and then what they do with the, with the fetuses, where they, where they um, use that for cosmetic products and food products and all sorts of sick and interesting things that, that they do. Well, well absolutely. And, and they all of their ancient um, perverted and, and destructive practices, the Jews of, of medieval Europe were accused of poisoning the wells. And today we drink fluoridated water. So our wells are being poisoned, and we subscribe to it. When the Jewish medical associations and dental associations recommended it, the Jews were accused in medieval Europe of poisoning the food supplies. If you don't think your food supply is poisoned today, you better look at the list of ingredients on some of the things that you think is food, because your food supply is being poisoned today by those same Jew bastards who actually get Christians to subscribe to such things along with them in the name of their perverted medical science. The, um, that there, there are many examples of how the, the Jews who have, through their financial power and, and their capitalism, infiltrated and corrupted the West, not only religiously, but every facet of our life is corrupted. And this is why we have so much cancer and sickness. This is why we're being overrun with aliens. That there's everything bad that's happening to us is bad because we are coddling the enemies of our God in our own land. And they are a protected class and they have been elevated and many of us who are religious, who are quote-unquote Judeo-Christians, are actually worshipping the enemies of God and have forsaken their God. It's a tragic thing. You know, it's, all, it's all there warning us in the Bible. It's all there warning us, explaining exactly why these things are happening, how to put a stop to them, what to do, you know, what not to do, not to allow aliens into our nations, otherwise we'll end up serving them. And, and specifically, you know, it warns us about the Jews being the children of the devil, it tells us that they're descended from the devil. It, it's, it's blatantly there. And yet the Judeo-Christians of today, I don't know how they, how they excuse that. I don't know whether they try and... They, Excuse it away as being an allegory or, or, or what, but you know it's all there. It's all there in, in black and white. The, the warnings are all there, and it, it just explains exactly why the world is the way that it is. And it's, and it's now just it's got so bad that uh, their ritual child sacrifices is on an industrial scale, and it and it, it's in, in the medicines, the food, in, in wells and. With, with the abortions and the, the um, taking the parts of the fetuses to, to use that for cosmetics and what have you. I mean, like, like, like we're saying, that goes back to um, medical things, and, and which they say, like the fluoride in the water, well, we need that for medicine, and we need stem cells from fetuses for medicine. But all this goes, goes back to this, this, these child sacrifices, drawing the blood from the Christian child to use it for ritual magic, for them to imbibe that to, as, as like a medicine, which goes back the same as, as that piece that I read out earlier about the women's, the Jewesses, swallowing the foreskin as a form of medicine so that it would make them fertile. 
So it's now being done on, on an industrial scale. It may not be being done so openly with, with individuals. It's not like we, you know, we very often find um, children's bodies that have, that have had this ritual uh, mutilation done to them. But instead, we've got stuff in our, in our food and in the cosmetics and in our water, which is you know, to, to do with this, especially this, this stem cell stuff that they use and what they use from the from the foreskin from the hospitals, all the, all that all that stuff they they're uh, using it and and putting it into various cosmetic products and medical products. Uh, it, it's all you know, it all goes back. It can all be traced back to the Jews, basically. Once you know that, then you, know, you understand, and you can see it. You can see it when it's happening. You can see it, see it everywhere. You can, you know, I, I think it was Mike Delaney that said, you know, whatever rock you lift up, you, you know, there'll be a Jew underneath it. Right. There, there's no doubt that these are the same ancient crimes being perpetrated daily by the Jews. It's only that they've gotten sophisticated, and their money power has allowed them to get these practices legalized in the West. Thank you for joining me, Sven, and, and we'll be here in two weeks. And maybe we'll pick up where we left off, or, or, or maybe we'll talk about something else. We'll discuss that later on. Yeah, thanks, Bill. I've uh, enjoyed it tonight. I hope uh, listeners have enjoyed it too. Praise Yahweh. And everybody who's listening, thank you for listening. I will be here in two weeks with another segment of Christogony Europe with Sven Lobshanks. And this Friday, with my presentation of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, part eight. Good night.